0: Hi, Sue Haley. Hi, Renee. I'm super excited because it's the first time we're recording since we released. Like, we did the first six episodes in a big chunk. Yes. And now we have listeners and we have feedback. I got a random... Message through Facebook right before we started recording tonight yes. that I screenshot and sent you. And it was somebody who was like, I don't know how I found you guys, but you're awesome. <laughs> and it's not one of our friends' names. It's like a new person. And I responded like an excited puppy with like lots of exclona- exclamation marks. I was going to say <laughs> Can't not, even not, talk. I'm so Not excited. expletives, I hope. <laughs> yeah. And it, it's been... So many life changes other than that outside of the podcast since we last recorded. Which
1: is the question that I was going to ask you. You were
0: going to ask me about that?
1: Well, kind of, sort of. Not the personal stuff. I mean... No, what I was going to ask you was, for people who don't know, obviously, Renee does all the editing, so she has to hear these episodes 92 times over before the final cut makes it out there. mm -hmm. Um, Someday, the rest of the world will get to listen to the bloopers and reels. Um, However... How did you feel? I know the answer to this question, my answer. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to let you think about it while I'm answering it for me. So how did you feel when, like I listened on Spotify. So how did you feel when our first episode was like out there for the world to see?
0: I was nervous.
1: Like I could tell you exactly where I was and what I was doing. And I held that phone for like five minutes, contemplating pressing, like pressing play to start listening to it. And then I don't even think I was actually listening to the words the first five minutes because I was like a fangirl, like, oh my God, this is us. And that's my voice and that's Renee's voice and that's our clip. Like I was just, I was so overwhelmed that had we only recorded those six episodes, I would have been totally cool with it. I still would have said I was a podcaster with six episodes (laughs) under our (laughs) belts. But that was for me, Such a gratifying moment. Like, it felt really, really good. So, Miss Renee, for you, how did you feel the first time you saw that episode there?
0: Well, I had just pushed the button on the computer. (laughs) And because I edited edited it so much, what I had been doing was was sending it to my phone as a file and listening in the car. And Mm -hmm. I'm like, that doesn't sound right. And re-editing and all that stuff. And so, when I finally sent the final version, I looked at the clock and I'm like, Oh my gosh, I'm late to pick up the kids from school. <laughs> so I jumped in the car and I hit play as I'm rushing out the door. And I'm like, oh my gosh, this is cool. This is a real thing. And then for some reason, there was no traffic that day. So the kids got in the car and they were like, oh my God, mom, turn it off. <laughs> and I'm like, I can't even listen to my first episode. And they're like, you've listened to this episode seven times. <laughs> I'm like, but now it's like official. It's real. And they're like, it sounds the same. So I don't know. It was... It was really cool. And my voice, like listening to it, I thought it was going to sound worse. And because- I've, I've been told
1: about my voice. Let's get a couple of things straight. So we all know I'm a northerner. I'm a Yankee. We all know I'm Spanish. So do I sound like Minnie Mouse on helium? Absolutely. It used to sound way worse because I used to be a smoker. So I sounded like Rosie Perez. I'm the
0: same way. I used to smoke too, and before smoking, my voice was. Wee. Whee! <laughs> Telemarketers used to call and ask for my mom, and I'm like, no. This so isn't... for whatever it was. So
1: for those out there that are listening that have asked what my voice sounds like, when it does not sound like that. When it's deeper, when I over enunciate, oh, when I it. slow down and breathe, this is what you get.
0: Okay, we're good. Do you want to dedicate that voice to anybody?
1: To those people who could not believe I could. (laughs) No, this is what it is. This is my podcast, and you get what you get. When you get your podcast, you sound how you sound. So we good. By the way, we're also not going to do the beginning, which is a disclaimer. Because guess what? If you're here, you're here. Oh, we're not going to do a disclaimer anymore? Why? Really, but why? We said we were a
0: true comedy podcast. So the words... I don't know, in the preview. In the- <laughs> no, but I mean, what if somebody turns on this episode and it's the first episode they're listening to? I, I want to start with number seven and then they're like, oh my God, you're making fun of criminals. <laughs> <laughs> Who
1: says that?
0: I don't know. I- exactly. So okay. let's get one thing straight.
1: Okay. So this is this is how we're going to short the disclaimer. You ready? We're not going to um. do one?
0: <laughs> <laughs> no. That's Ooh, not what I said. I know. I know. Ready? Yeah. Disclaimer. Be prepared to be offended in all the ways. Pretty way. Pretty, <laughs> Is that our new disclaimer yeah. for every episode? <laughs> and if we didn't
1: offend you by the end of the episode, don't worry. We have another episode following this one where we're going to try again. You
0: know, I was afraid we were talking too long and that people wouldn't like that we talked so much before getting into an episode. But now it's just the length of our regular disclaimer. So we're fine. Yeah, we're fine. We're fine. Listen, we're, we are who we are. Okay. You ready? I'm ready You're for ready this one. I know that I have to record two episodes tonight and i only wrote one because you know i was off meeting my family for the first time so i had a big fucking weekend and i didn't write anything so what i'm gonna need you to do is like mm.
1: not do that like not schedule like your time on art
0: <laughs> but we're meeting this week because you have a thing next weekend yeah yeah okay. <laughs> i see how this works all right so you asked me if i was ready to squeeze the juice and i am Okay, we'll squeeze away. All right, so you know that I love to say as my first sentence, have you ever heard of <laughs> Donald Dilbeck? No. I just realized I forgot to put something very important at the end of this. <laughs> <laughs> We're so, professionals. I know. I'm going to say it right now so I don't forget. Mm-hmm. He was the 100th person executed in the state of Florida.
1: Oh, did he have a party?
0: No. Actually, they did when they killed him. No, there. well, I didn't put this in here either, but since you asked, there was a protest outside while he was... That sounds like a party. Yeah. All right, well, let's get into the episode. Okay, let's do that. All right. Donald David Dilbeck was born in Texas on May 24th, 1963. His mother, Audrey Hosey, was a schizophrenic and an alcoholic. It was said that she drank 18 to 24 cans of beer per day while she was pregnant with Donald. She was thirsty. What's the problem? She's the, in Florida. It's, it gets hot here. They were in Texas. Oh, shit. <laughs> um, his father left and abandoned the family when Donald was only three years old, and he said it was because he couldn't take his abusive, alcoholic wife. Sorry. <laughs> okay. You can What? <laughs> That bitch crazy. (laughs) She was. We'll get into it. (laughs) Good. I'm good. I'm good. good. Um, Donald also had an older sister, and their mother sexually abused both kids and would spank them with electric cords and knives. Often, there would be no reason for the abuse, and she'd also withhold food as a form of abuse. She'd stuff cotton into his mouth and tape it shut, leaving him that way all night. (sighs) She'd wrap tape around him like a mummy so he couldn't move. She always had a beer in her hand and lots of men in the house. Looking back, Donald was sure she was a prostitute. He also remembers having to steal milk off of the neighbor's porches just so he could eat. At the age of four, he and his sister were sent to foster homes and they were separated. Audrey, their mother, would be sent to a mental hospital for most of her life. She was so sick that she would drink her own urine and eat her own feces. The separation from his sister was very hard on him because the sister was the only person who had ever shown him love in his life. And the abuse continued in the foster homes. He was described as a slow learner, did poorly in school, and had a reading disorder. At the age of six, Donald was adopted by Charles and Ada Dilbeck. He had been in four to five foster homes before getting adopted. And at some point, somewhere, they moved to Anderson, Indiana. I'm not sure if it was while he was in foster. It never really said, but at this point, he's living in Indiana. He started using drugs when he was 13. He abused drugs and alcohol, but wasn't provided with any mental health counseling or substance abuse treatments. On March 30th, 1979, Donald, while high on speed, decided to steal a CB radio from a truck. Now, this is the first recorded incident of him getting in trouble. At this point, he's 15, a freshman in high school. He's actively drinking and doing drugs. He's got poor grades, but the school counselor said he wasn't a troublemaker. He had a good attendance record, and neighbors said he was a nice kid. So we don't really know, like, what he had been up to. But on this particular Friday night, Philip Reeder was in his home with his wife and some friends. His 1978 Chevy Blazer was parked out in the driveway. At 9 p.m., he went to get some groceries out of his truck. When he opened the truck's door, he noticed a boy trying to steal the radio. He grabbed the boy by the arm and was going to take him to his house to give him a good talking to. And that's when Donald stabbed him in the heart. Jesus. Now, some sources say he stabbed him with a knife, and other sources say it was with a screwdriver. Personally, I believe it was a screwdriver because it happened all so fast, and he was already Mm -hmm. trying to steal the radio that it just makes sense he had the screwdriver in his hand. But it was it was really verifiable sources that said knife and verifiable that said screwdriver. So I can't really be sure which one it is. After the stabbing, Donald freaked out, knowing police would be looking for him. So he stole a Pontiac and he ran away to Fort Myers, Florida, where he later said he had some friends. Three days later, his mother reported him as a runaway. Miraculously, Philip Reeder survived. The weapon had cut the left ventricle of his heart, but he lived, and he was able to ID Donald from police photos, and that Wednesday, Madison County issued a warrant for Donald Dilbeck charging him with attempted murder. And this is another thing, like, he had never gotten in trouble, didn't have a record, but so why were police showing photos of him? Mm-hmm. So I, I, don't, I don't know if maybe there was some stuff that they never said, but that was a question I had that I couldn't get answered. All right, so let's follow Donald and head to Florida. Here you go, road trip. Bring road your trip. Snacks. Road trip. Speaking of road trips, <laughs> I warned you. We even looked up how to pronounce verbo. <laughs> have you ever been to Fort Myers Beach? Yes, I have. I have never been to Fort Myers Beach. Is it as nice as it looks in the pictures? Yes, actually it is. Is it? Yeah. So I was wondering why our group never looked into that area. I don't know. I don't Cause, know because we like living in Florida. <laughs> We we do Orlando so much, so it looks like a really nice place to travel. So I went on a verbo and I found a little one bedroom place that you and I could rent for eighty four dollars a night. And That's it's cool. not too far from the beach. It was really cute too. Full kitchen and everything. And then I was like, Well heck, let's invite everybody. And I looked into how many the thirteen of us. <laughs> Could fit the, And I found it, I found out for our cult, Savage. <laughs> it would be three hundred and ten dollars per night for That's the place that bad. I found. It's not bad and it's right by the beach, and I hate the beach, you know this, but I thought it was a really, really cute place to visit. So You look at me like I like the beach. Have you met me? I, I hate mm. it, but it looks so adorable. And you know what else? It also seems to have some really nice police officers. Okay. I like concrete.
1: I like street lights. I like um, horns and honking. I'm about that city. That city life. Really? <laughs> Fuck yeah.
0: Hmm. I'm all about that concrete jungle. I just got back from Atlanta, man. It was nice. I was driving at one point, and I'm like, "Oh my god, there's a mountain." <laughs> they have those. I got to meet my sister for the first time, and I go, "There's a mountain." <laughs> Look She's up. Like,
1: yes. <laughs> yes, we have those. Yes, here. we have those. I don't know. This weirdo. (laughs) We're Mount Dora.
0: (laughs) Oh! (laughs) I'm gonna be talking about meeting my family a lot. Okay. Okay. So we fondled. We fondled. We fondled Donald. We fondled Donald. Oh! And again, I'm calling him Donald here, but it's still back later. That escalated. I'm gonna cut it out. It's a a blooper. (laughs) All right. Has some nice police officers. Fucking fondling people. So the nice police officers, for example, Lee County Sheriff's Deputy Dwight Lynn Hall, who everyone just called Lynn, was a really great guy. He was 31 years old, and his 10-year law enforcement career was interesting. He was an Air Force veteran, a Vietnam vet, and had worked as a fingerprint technician for the FBI in 1966. Motherfucker wanted all the jobs, huh? He had been with the Lee County Sheriff's Department for two years and had previously worked for the Clearwater Police Department. He was an outstanding officer and had been named Officer of the Month twice during his two years with Lee County. His fellow officers said he was always smiling and was well liked and respected by every man in the department. Fuck the women. It's an, I was <laughs> I swear to you, like I have a little asterisk because <laughs> it's 1979. So here's the difference. Did you when I was like he was elected Officer of the Month? That was the quote by the woman in the office. And the man in the office go, he was well respected by every man. And I'm like, this this is what the newspapers are portraying. She cares about Officer of the Month. Mm-hmm. And he's like, every man respected him. See, I looked at it the other way.
1: Yeah. Like, he was respected by all the women, but not the women.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I bet he was, because he was super great husband, too. Aww. He had been married to his wife, Karen, for four years. They both had um, children from their previous... As- previous... As- <laughs> I forgot how hard it was to talk.
1: (laughs) It's not what we do here.
0: They both had children from previous marriages. She brought her seven-year-old son into the marriage, and he had a six-year-old daughter who I believe still lived in Clearwater. I'm not sure how often he saw her. But he was a real family man. He was really into playing Little League with his stepson, and he spent a lot of time working with young kids. And his marriage was great, too. His wife had given him the gun he carried as a present. Because of his job and the fact that there was always a chance he wouldn't come home, he made a point of never leaving the house mad. Personally, I hate when people say that. My ex and I used to do the never go to bed mad. I, I didn't sleep some night. I'm like, we're not doing that. I'm going to bed mad. This is taking too long. I am so tired. Good night. He's like, we can't go to bed mad. I'm like, I'm going to pass out. Sir, and then you'll good be Really mad. Night.
1: You're making me madder. <laughs> Now I forgot why the fuck I was mad. I'm just mad.
0: <laughs> but apparently it worked for them. <laughs> so, well, good for them. He was working overnight Wednesday, April 11th, 1979. The night before he called his wife just before getting into bed. She was away at a business meeting and he called her just a teaser about how he had done the sheets. <laughs> and he was sleeping in nice clean sheets without her. <laughs> okay. But he had really just called to say goodnight and that he loved her one last time before bed. He also wasn't supposed to work that night, but he knew he had the next day off, and he was planning on making a pitchback for his stepson and painting the kitchen cabinets. Do you know what a pitchback is? No. I didn't either. I looked it up, and I have one in my garage. <laughs> <laughs> you want to tell me what the fuck it is? Yeah, yeah. Maybe I have so, one in my garage? So it's like a, a net at an angle that's pulled tightly so that when you play baseball, like, you could throw the ball against it to, like, okay. practice pitching, and I guess it, it's... Wound so tight that it pitches it back at you? I can't have one of those. It would hit me right in the goddamn face. That night, he was given the easy job of patrolling the beach. There was a public park where people would park and sleep in their cars overnight, but it was against county ordinance to do that. So officers would just go there every night to inform people that they had to move their cars. Okay. Just before 1 a.m. on April 11th, Deputy Lynn Hall parked his patrol car behind two vehicles, a van and a green Pontiac. He left his motor running and aimed his spotlight on the area. He approached the Pontiac first to inform the driver of the county ordinance. Being a part of the nightly routine, he didn't have his weapon drawn. When he looked through the window of the car, he saw a sleeping kid who wasn't even old enough to have a driver's license. A kid around the same age as the kids he worked with while volunteering. He woke up Donald Dillback, who got out of the car to speak with him. There's a couple different versions of what happened next, but in both versions, we know that Donald was scared because he knew that the police in Indiana were looking for him in connection with the stabbing. Version one was that Deputy Hall radioed in to check the tag numbers on the car, and knowing it was stolen, Donald ran. Version two, and this is taken from a court document from Donald way later in life, was that Deputy Hall was placing him under arrest for possession of a hash pipe and marijuana. And while searching him against the patrol car, Donald turned around, kicked him between the legs, and ran. Despite how it happened, Deputy Hall chased him and tackled him to the ground 10 feet away from the car. He repeatedly told Donald he wasn't going to hurt him. They struggled. Both of them wound up with cuts and scratches all over themselves from the struggle. Fearing that he was going to end up in jail... Donald pulled Deputy's Hall 357 Magnum revolver from its holster and fired it at point-blank range. He hit Hall right above his right eye, but it wasn't a fatal shot. Donald then stood up, stepped back, and fired a second shot into Hall's back. Then he turned and ran. People walking along the beach heard the gunshots and called the police. Hall was found face down in the sand with a small bag of marijuana lying close by. He had severe powder burns on his face. There were no powder burns on his shirt in the back indicating the gun was at least a foot away when the trigger was pulled. This next part might be hard to hear, but I thought it was really interesting to hear about how the ambulance like goes into action in a scene like this, so I included it. I apologize if it triggers you.
1: No, because most people are going to want to know.
0: Most people don't know. I I didn't really know how mm. the ambulances did things on the scene, and and some of it was super interesting about ambulances meeting each other. The first ambulance arrived at 1.04 a.m. It was apparent that Hall needed immediate aid at the scene rather than attempt to transport him before he was stable. Some deputies surrounded the scene while others helped ambulance personnel administer drugs, set up IV solutions, administer cardiac life support, plasma treatments, and CPR. Another ambulance arrived on scene bringing more vital drugs. Blood transfusions were also started. By 1.30, the waiting room at the hospital began to fill up with relatives and off-duty officers. High-ranking sheriff's department personnel nervously paced the waiting room. Burly lawmen began to cry openly as they were struck by the reality of the situation. At 1.45, Hall's condition was extremely critical and the plasma supply had become critically low. Another ambulance was called for requesting more plasma, IVs and drugs. It was decided that they should transport Hall to the hospital, so en route the two ambulances met each other and were able to get the additional supplies onto Hall's ambulance. Extra supplies of blood were also being rushed to the hospital at this time in preparation. Kind of like a relay race over there. It, it's, it's crazy. I've never mm-hmm. like read it like this. It's crazy. At 2 a.m., deputies stood at the hospital ambulance ramp waiting to give assistance. At 2.06 a.m., the ambulance pulled into the ramp while medics were seen inside still struggling to save Hall. Doctors entered the ambulance to help. They all worked inside the ambulance until 2.12 a.m. Lights were turned off in the ambulance as doctors and technicians left the vehicle. Hall's body remained alone inside the ambulance, an indication that he was dead. A lone deputy guarded the ambulance, tears streaming down his face. And that last bit I read was a quote directly from the newspaper. Um, It was an article written in news press by Wayne Melton, because I didn't think I could say it any better than what he said right there. Um, I, I think he said it perfectly, so I had to quote it directly. Back at the murder scene, police were scrambling to find the person who shot Deputy Hall. By 1.30 a.m., nearly 100 uniformed and off-duty officers closed off the area and had established roadblocks checking anyone attempting to leave the beach. Two men were sleeping in that van that was parked next to the stolen Pontiac, and they said they were awakened by the shots but didn't witness anything. One bullet had penetrated the right door of the van, but neither man was injured, and the bullet was later found on the floorboard. I'm going to read quotes here by another article in News Press, by Lee Melsek, called Pursuit Through Seamy, Shadowy Crowd, because I just love the way old newspapers sometimes write things. Yes, like it's, they're
1: very poetic.
0: Yes. So I kind of picked and chose, like, sentences and mashed it all together. Mm-hmm. So it's not exactly like this, but I liked the way it was written. Grim lawmen pursued a killer through a seamy crowd of drifters and drunks searching for a faceless gunman. The darkness refused to surrender. The car, a green Pontiac with Indiana license plates, had been stolen in Anderson, Indiana. Sheriff's Department fingerprint experts went to work seeking clues. From a spot near the Pontiac, Captain Lee Clark took command of the growing faces of bleary-eyed lawmen, many of whom had shunned sleep to track the killer. Clark sent teams of canine units north along the beach. The testy dogs pulled their handlers toward shadows that could hide a fugitive or a cock gun. Before dawn erased the darkness, a total of 84 lawmen and U.S. Coast Guards had joined the search. The Coast Guard roamed the gulf near the shore where Hall had been slain. A helicopter scammed the beach beneath a black sky. In the distance, northward up the beach, a police dog's yelp turned heads in the direction of the sound. It was a false alarm. The searchers wore bulletproof vests. Some carried shotguns. Without a description of the killer, all strangers were suspects. The clues came as slowly as the dawn. A composite sketch of a youth seen running from the area finally provided a face for searchers. The face would be recognized later when dawn shifted the advantage to lawmen and destroyed the anonymity of darkness. Jesus. This guy wants an award. <laughs> <laughs> this is the one, guys. This it's is going to get me the Pulitzer. It's it's great writing. I'm like, what am I reading here? It's more like fiction. I know. I wish I could write like that. At 7.30 a.m., Donald Dilbeck, wearing only a faded pair of gym trunks, walked up to officers and turned himself in. He was advised of his rights and immediately placed in a patrol car and transported to the Criminal Investigation Division at the Sheriff's Department for questioning. He offered no resistance. He voluntarily confessed, saying he was high on drugs at the time, and that he had hid in one of the pink shell cottages while police were searching for him. He was taken to Lee Memorial Hospital following his arrest because he had severe powder burns on his face, as well as the cuts and scratches I mentioned before. His shorts were wet when he was arrested, indicating he may have gone for a swim to wash the blood out of his shorts and off his body. He was ordered held without bond following an afternoon hearing and was charged with first-degree murder 12 hours after the shooting. The state attorney said he would attempt to have Dilbeck legally certified as an adult within the next few days so that he could face the death sentence. One witness told investigators that he had seen a youth throw something into the water early Wednesday morning. Divers were in the water off the beach all day Wednesday searching, and beach residents helped look as well. W.D. Hall was well-known and well-liked in the area, and everyone got involved in the search. The Sheriff's Department and seven other agencies spent 13 days looking for the gun. The use of metal detectors and scuba diving equipment occupied searchers for more than 1,800 hours in the nearly two weeks. The use of underwater metal detectors covered about 10 yards per hour. They were not built for the 24-around-the-clock extensive use that they were doing, and they kept breaking and had to be repaired. It was a really expensive rescue effort. On the 13th day, a woman told investigators that she had seen someone matching Donald's description walking near the pink shell cottages. Remember I mentioned those earlier? Yes. The gun was found buried three inches below the sand there. It was about 4,000 feet from the scene of the shooting. Oh my I <laughs>
1: Yeah. Okay. Okay. The place where he hid. Yeah. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right there. Open your eyes. (laughs) Look down.
0: Three inches under the sand.
1: (laughs) (laughs) A strong gust of wind could have blown that bitch over.
0: (laughs) Aha! 4,000 feet from the scene of the crime. (laughs) So, okay. Okay. I didn't find a number of how much it cost for the rescue. Uh, I don't want to know. 1,800 hours. I don't want to Seven know. police agencies. Just the seven agencies alone is too fucking much. The newspapers also interviewed Donald's adoptive parents. His mother, Ada, said that she couldn't believe that her boy would kill someone. She was going out of her mind wondering if she had done something wrong to cause this and hadn't been able to eat at all since learning about what happened. She had spoken to him once on the phone and said that he was so scared and she was so nervous that she didn't remember much about what they talked about. Ada and her husband started selling some of their things off so they could afford to travel down to Florida. They were able to visit with him over a weekend. On Saturday, they said he couldn't calm down at all, but Sunday was much better, though they didn't talk about what happened. She said he was a good kid. He helped people and was good to everyone. She said that he had asked jailers for a radio and a Bible and had received both. They went back home, but said they would travel back to Florida if he needed them. Eventually, they moved down to Florida permanently and lived within five miles of the prison. This art, like this story, there's a lot of talk about like them and what they went through, and you don't really get that with stories like this. So I found it interesting.
1: The older newspapers do that a lot. Like they really go in depth to both sides of the story, mm-hmm. you know, and they paint that picture of both sides as opposed to the articles that you read now.
0: Yeah. And I noticed while doing this story, like my opinion changed so much. Like I hated him in the beginning, but then I'm like, I'm reading about his parents and I'm reading about the abuse he suffered when he was young. And like I said to you, I go back and forth between calling him Donald and, and mm-hmm. Dilbeck later in here that I'm just like and and I have to say now that I think that that the end of this sounds like I was almost feeling bad for him, which I didn't. Well you could but it ended up can, writing itself that way. Well
1: you could feel bad for the child and just hate the adult.
0: I mean... That's true. He's still responsible for his actions. Well, we'll get into that, too. In June 1979, now 16-year-old Donald Dilbeck pled guilty and was sentenced to life. He pled guilty, hoping to avoid the death penalty. Under Florida statutes, anyone convicted of first-degree murder must serve at least 25 years in prison before becoming eligible for parole. So he'd be eligible in 2004 when he's 41 years old. Still young. hmm Two years later, in 1981, the park where the shooting occurred had been renovated, and the city had a dedication event renaming the park Lynn Hall Park and created a memorial in his name. Mm-hmm. They did a lot of articles with his wife yeah, and a lot of interviews. I didn't really include so much in this article because it, it said what you would yeah. expect, you know, how much she was he was her best friend, not just her husband, and how much they loved each other and... At the funeral, his stepson said, God must have needed a police officer. And just, I was like, I'm going to cry if I read all that stuff. But they they did a lot of interviews with her where I was just like, he gutted? seemed, I was gutted. And yeah. he seemed like such a good man. Mm-hmm. And now that I'm saying this, I wish I had included some because the rest of this almost looks like I'm for Donald. <laughs> and I'm not like you want to you want to pause the recording and go get it i do kind of want to pause this recording and just say like some of her quotes but no just just know that like he was awesome she was awesome like they seem like great people and you know it should have never happened about a month after turning 16 donald Dilbeck was sent to one of florida's most violent prisons Sumter Correctional had the highest inmate-upon-inmate assault rates in the state during the years he was there from 1973 to 83. Dilbeck was raped so many times that he hired a 30-year-old inmate to be his bodyguard, and he paid him with sex. He was moved around a lot and had a few disciplinary issues. In 1983, he tried to escape from Zephyr Hill's Correctional Institution, but he got caught in the razor wire above the prison fence.
1: Yeah, that's where you get caught
0: at. He received a one-year sentence for the attempt. In 84, he chased a prison inmate with a 15-inch homemade knife. He claimed it was self-defense and received a disciplinary report on his record. And in 85, he was disciplined for getting drunk on homemade wine. We do start to see some issues and errors on his records. In 1986, an order transferring him to Avalon Park Prison described him as a management problem, but another report said the transfer was because of a change in the state's youthful offender program. In 1988, he tried to escape again with two other inmates, but was not charged with this crime. Instead, he was transferred to the DeSoto Correctional Institution. Most of the reports on his record say he was a good inmate. He never had a problem with officers and did what was asked of him. He had a good influence on other inmates, was a good worker with a good attitude, respected authority, and worked well in the library and was outstanding at housekeeping work. So prisons have what's called a custody rating. Do they still have that? Something like that. That's usually how you get out
1: on early release. Okay. It goes against your DRs. It counts everything up. And then if you meet the 85% threshold and you you know have low DRs, the, the disciplinary reports, then you qualified to get out a little bit
0: earlier. Okay. Back then, they also used it for if you went into minimum security. Yep. So they used points to determine the amount of security needed for the prisoners, and they were given points were given for things like whether the prisoner psychotic, is under the death sentence, has a life sentence with one or more twenty five year minimums, had tried to escape in the past five years, the type of offense they're in for how much time has been served versus how much is left and whether the prisoner has a tendency towards violence. A.K.A. does this person have anything else left to lose? Mm-hmm. Like if he's there for life, you ain't got shit to lose.
1: So it's balls to the wall, you know, and you wake up every day looking at your list of, how am I going to piss off these motherfuckers today? <laughs> I mean, mm-hmm. you can't give me any more time than the life you've already given me, so let's go. I'm bored.
0: So they said a prisoner with more than four points would not be eligible for minimum security programs. So let's look at Dilbeck real quick. Um, He had a life sentence Mm -hmm. with a 25-year minimum. Mm -hmm. He tried to escape twice in the past five years. He was in for murdering a police officer. How much time had been served versus how much time is left? I think it was like he had 14 years left. So he had been in for 11 years at this point. And tendency towards violence. I mean, he did chase someone around with a knife. Exactly. Like that's five points right there. But even even without the violence, with more than four points, I just listed four points. Exactly. So what? He's in minimum security now, which is what happened. So because Florida be mathing? Because <laughs> Florida can't do math. But there were also errors in his custody rating that began in May 1989, and that November, based on a request from Dilbeck himself. Officials reevaluated him and recommended transferring him to Quincy Vocational Center where he would train as a cook and a baker, under minimum security.
1: I know exactly where Quincy is.
0: He arrived in February and started the program. Later that same month, he went out on his first catering event, a banquet honoring law enforcement officers. Of
1: course! But of
0: course! <laughs> oh, continue, please. Okay. He ended up going out on five of these catering events. The last one was an educational development banquet at Gretna Elementary School in North Florida, about 15 miles southeast of Tallahassee. Jesus Christ. I still can't get over your your first gig. I know. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Remember when I said that when I was reading this, I went on a tangent about a cop yes. killer? did That was it. That was the tangent in my head about the cop killer serving fucking crepes to... Like, what must have been going through his head? Like, ha ha, fuck you? Like,
1: <laughs> I pissed in that ketchup. <laughs> I know. Something.
0: And... I mean, looking back, like, yeah, he freaked out, he panicked, like, whatever. But he shouldn't have been catering that banquet. No. Three correctional officers were there to oversee the ten working inmates. Shortly after 8 p.m., Donald Dillbeck walked away. Oh, okay. He just left. He didn't want to be there anymore. Okay, bye! (laughs) That's what you said in my head when I wrote that. Deuces. Peace. Bye.
1: (laughs) He just want to go out. I gotta go. <laughs> I got another catering gig.
0: <laughs> I knew you'd like that one. I gotta go. The police immediately issued a manhunt and reported to local media for people to be on the lookout. They described him as a 5 foot 11 inch white man. 150 pounds, brown hair, brown eyes. Last seen wearing a white cook's uniform. If spotted, contact law enforcement. Psst.
1: Can if you, you should... imagine all the fucking bakers on high fucking alert? By the way, we have a friend who is a baker. We're so sorry.
0: Could you imagine you see a man in a like chef's uniform just running through the woods? Yeah. <laughs> that's not weird. Oh no, wait! I saw on the news. That's a bad thing. Is he catching <laughs> the turkey? <laughs> oh, this guy really fresh to farm, huh?
1: Wearing well, a white cook's uniform you and just running Ooh. down the street. Woo! He want that meat the freshest straight from the farm to your table.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Do you imagine if that's how it worked The cooks Ugh. had to go out and chase their own <laughs> chickens? I would pay extra to be at that restaurant. No, that means they're all... Note for people in restaurants. <laughs> I would pay extra to watch the chefs chase the fucking pigs around the yard in mud. Like <laughs> the fucking Hunger Games? Yes. What are you doing? I'm hungry. They're playing games. Oh, my God. Okay. Just saying. <laughs> That'd be a great fucking dinner and a show. <laughs> <God>. <laughs> I have to say something sad now, so let's get it out. Okay, get it all out. Okay. On Sunday, June 24th, 1990, Faye Lamb Van, age 44, had gone at the Tallahassee Mall with her two adult sons, one of their girlfriends, and her two-year-old grandson to return some clothing. They had planned to go swimming later, so since she was only wearing a bathing suit and a t-shirt, she decided to wait for them in her 1965 Chevy Nova. Around 3 p.m. I, I had a joke for the Chevy Nova. Go for it. First of all... Look at the age of this
1: of, of that story. Because if, there, if that was 2023, you know, grandma would be up in there in her teebacks and shorts and her flip flops because that's how Florida gets down. So the modesty of this woman to have stayed in her car. I love it. By the way, um, in Spanish, mm-hmm. Nova, mm-hmm. Nova means don't go. So that car don't go. Just wanted to let you know that.
0: Around 3 p.m., 27-year-old Donald Dilbeck approached the car and asked her for a ride. When she resisted, he took a knife, stabbed her repeatedly, pushed her down to the floorboard of the car, and drove away. Seeing the attack, a man ran into the nearby store Gafers and said a man was attacking a woman in the parking lot. He, another man, and a security officer ran outside and started chasing the car. Dilbeck drove about 100 yards before crashing into a white sob. Dilbeck... I wrote Dilbert... (laughs) Wasn't Zilbert just canceled? I have no fucking clue. Dilbeck got out of the car and ran. Two men chased him while the third checked on Fay. She had an eight-inch slash across her throat and 19 other stab wounds. Her cause of death was asphyxiation from drowning in her own blood. Police tracked him down to a nearby neighborhood where he surrendered quietly about 15 minutes later. He told the officer arresting me, Kill me. I'm going to the chair anyway. Shoot me. I've already killed one of you all. Shoot me. I got AIDS. Jesus Christ! What is he, Daffy Duck? Just shoot him now! Shoot him now! He 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 didn't want to go back to prison. Clearly. No, and we'll talk about it later. Like like, why he's got an issue with it, <laughs> other than the obvious. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> you
1: okay? Why do you have an issue going to prison?
0: well (laughs) as he lay handcuffed in the back of the patrol car he began kicking at the car windows and hyperventilating when he was instructed to get out of the car he didn't move was he playing fucking what is he doing officers said he was limp and sweaty and they had to go Mm, i like that description i know but i don't know if i can say this next sentence without losing it They had to go get an office chair on wheels to roll him into the police station. What the f? Remember when I said I wanted that? Music in the background. (laughs) They went into the police station, they got an office chair, and they literally rolled him into the police station. Doyle, get up! We need a chair! (laughs) But I'm working,
1: boss! Like. (laughs) (laughs) Get up, fat ass! I don't want to sit there now that the limp, sweaty man's been in it. <laughs> He's limp and sweaty. They rolled him in an office chair out of the parking lot. Jesus Christ. We couldn't get like a wheelchair? they I mean, that's what they call those.
0: It was a wheelchair.
1: It was an improvised wheelchair. Okay, there, MacGyver.
0: He told them his name was Robert Larry Greenwood. When they asked him if his name was Donald David Dilbeck, he said, Merry Christmas. Yes. Who said, Who that?" I'm that. Merry Christmas. <laughs> Yahtzee. I'm your present. <laughs> Ta da! <laughs> don't leave that way!
1: <laughs> Ta da! Fucking <his> spirit fingers. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, I can't! Donald!
0: <laughs> Donald Dilbeck's trial began on February 18th, 1991, and the main point of his trial was really about whether or not the murder was premeditated. Under Florida's felony murder law, if a person Mm -hmm. is killed during the commission of a felony, in this case, stealing a car, then it's automatically first degree murder and the prosecution doesn't have to prove it. Murder. Murder.
1: (laughs) What is that from? I don't know, but you will go over to the right place. We just quoted something from a movie and we can't
0: quote it. Murder. Murder. I know. I said something weird there (laughs) because I can't talk. I don't know what your accent was, but I love it. I don't know. The point from the prosecution was that he brought a knife, so it was premeditation, and -hmm. the point from the defense was that it wasn't purchased with the intent to kill since he needed a driver. Dilbeck testified during the guilt phase of the trial. The courtroom was filled to standing capacity with people who were waiting to hear what he had to say. He began with the escape, saying that he stood there waiting for 20 minutes to work up the nerve to leave. The officers weren't watching at all. So he ran and then buried himself under a bush for hours. That first night, he walked in the woods along Highway 90 for eight miles. His only nourishment was from a few sips left in a tossed out ginger ale bottle. In the morning, he ditched his white clothing and stole his shirt and pants off a clothesline. Straight out of a fucking movie. Well, in the 70s, there were clotheslines everywhere. Imagine how many felons would be caught if there weren't as many clotheslines in America back then. (laughs) Do you know why we did away with them? Because we got lazy and got
1: gyres. No, because that's what Mike Myers used to hide behind in it, all the fucking movies. That's
0: why we got rid of them in American society, not because I want to believe that. It's I'm agreeing with you. <laughs> he walked the rest of the way to Tallahassee, getting about four hours of sleep in the woods. On Sunday, he had his first meal of freedom, donuts and a Mountain Dew. He was tired and scared, and his feet were full of blisters. His plan was to call a friend he'd made in prison who lived in Orange City to come pick him up. He tried to call his friend 20 times, but the phone just kept ringing. So he moved on to plan B. He went into Publix, spent eighty-nine on cheap serrated paring knife because it was cheap and pocket-sized, and he could hide it. His plan was to get someone to take him somewhere. He said if they could drive him to a less crowded area like the country, he could learn to drive again from there. The last time he had driven was in 1979, and he said he didn't remember how to drive. It's kind of like riding a bike. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering about this plan though. He walked 15 miles to call a friend and get a ride. Mm hmm. He couldn't, like, come up with a plan to steal a car before walking 15 miles. He couldn't just use his cell phone. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I'm just saying. He couldn't get a fucking Uber, a Lyft, a cab. I'm wondering where he got the $1.89 for the knife. Was there money in the clothesline pockets? Like where the hell did he get Cha-ching! the money? Cha-ching! and I don't know where he got the donuts, I don't know anything about <laughs> <in> the <this> story. <laughs> it's a good thing you did your research. <laughs> Nothing ever said where he got the money. I tried. I'm not in loopholes. I was so confused I looked it up for a while. <laughs> Nothing ever said where he got the two dollars. Dollar eighty nine. It was $1.89 was so much in those courts. Was he $1. paying $89? handling? I don't know. All I know is that he paid it at Publix. But well, shopping is a pleasure. What? He waited by Gapers in a baseball cap and mirror sunglasses. Were those on the clothesline too? Yes. There's so many holes in this story. <laughs> okay. Keep talking. He waited by gaffers in a baseball cap and mirror sunglasses until he spotted a woman alone in a car with the windows down. He said he looked he said she looked real easy to get a ride from. He said, quote, lady, you're going to give me a ride. And she says, I ain't taking you nowhere. And I said, bitch, you're going to give me a ride. And that's when she started honking the horn. He reached in to pull her hands from the horn and his hat fell off. So she started pulling his hair and biting his fingers. At this point, he said he was freaking out and just started to stab her. He said he stopped stabbing her when it got real peaceful in the car. The defense argued that this was not premeditated. This was a panicked, frenzied attack. The prosecution made a point that this all happened during a two-minute time span. The prosecutor took out his watch, stood before the jury, and counted out two minutes in 15-second intervals. After two hours of deliberation, the jury found him guilty of premeditated murder, armed robbery, and armed burglary. His biological mother's mental health records became very relevant for the penalty phase because prosecutors were seeking the death penalty. So Dilbeck wrote a letter to his mother to ask her to speak with his lawyers about the case. When she got the letter, she ran out in front of a car and killed herself. Donald said his biggest fear wasn't the electric chair. It was becoming insane like his mother. This is where they started discussing how fetal alcohol syndrome affected him. Remember that his mother drank about a case of beer per day while she was pregnant with him. Mm -hmm. The results of a mother drinking that much while pregnant leaves the child with impaired judgment and impulse control. So this is when I went down a bit of a rabbit hole and did some research about fetal alcohol syndrome on my own. (laughs) Okay. And they often shorten it to either FAS or FASD, which I was like, thank God I don't have to say the whole word again. Mm -hmm. So other symptoms of FAS include hyperactive behavior, difficulty with attention, poor memory, difficulty in school, learning disabilities, intellectual disability or low IQ, poor reasoning and judgment skills. And as they grow up, their emotional and social problems often get worse. I found one study of long-term FAS effects that showed that there was a proven connection between a mother drinking too much during pregnancy and the child growing up to have psychopathology and mental impairment. People with FAS tend to have increased risks of comorbid mental and developmental disorders, and that risk increases 40% more when you combine FAS with foster care or with juvenile and adult corrections. Okay. He had both. So then you consider what's referred to as the 10 ACE items, which are the adverse childhood experience items. These 10 items are verbal emotional abuse, physical abuse, sexual abuse, unloving family or emotional neglect, parental mental illness, neglect, parents divorced or separated. If the mothers have been abused, drinking or drugs in the house, and if a parent's in prison. Which his mother wasn't in prison, but she was in a mental yep. hospital. So he had, what, nine out of the ten? Out of the ten. Because the only thing we don't know there is whether or not his mother was abused. Yep. Chances are she was. She was. And that's the reason why she drank so much, probably. So ten out of ten of these ACE items combined with, mm-hmm. you know, the fact that things that give you increased risks mixed with this you know fetal alcohol syndrome basically uh, there's no way that he doesn't end up with mental illness Mm -hmm. with all these combinations and all this started back when she was still pregnant with him because not only that but she passed along her own mental illnesses to him as well so both sides the defense and the prosecution they agreed yes he inherited these symptoms from his mother yes he had brain damage from birth He had mild to moderate psychotic disturbance, and he was acting under the influence of his mental disturbances during the attacks. Mm. But he did know right from wrong. The defense's neuropsychologist said he had something between schizoid and a schizotypo personality disorder, which falls short of actual schizophrenia. But the prosecution said that they didn't find any of those diagnoses to be true. Okay. Regardless of the actual terms used to define his mental illness, everyone agreed that Donald did know right from wrong. It's just that when he loses control, he tries to get out of this situation at any cost because he values his freedom above all else. Okay. And honestly, I totally get that. Because think of the abuse when he was young. He was tied down. Yep. He was taped up. Um, He was abused in foster care. He was forced to live without the only sibling that loved him anybody who's been forced to be in a bad environment or has been held down and abused, they're going to lash out you're, Yeah, you're going to fight for your freedom. So, you know, when he killed the officer, and again, I am not standing up for anything that he did, but when he killed the officer, he was freaking out that he was going to go to jail. Because he was taking away his freedom, Mm -hmm. his liberties. And then he just freaked the fuck out on, on poor Faye. Like, that... You know, that, that was the lack of impulse control. Mm-hmm. And then one of these doctors said, you know, you could relate what he was going to as like a car with broken brakes. Mm-hmm. Like you're fine until you get to a speed and you try to stop and then you can't. Yep. But again, I am not sticking up for this guy at all whatsoever. It's just reading all of the stories and everything. It, it kind of had me thinking in both directions. The jurors were faced with the decision of whether or not to give Donald Dilbeck the death penalty in this case. They had listened to all the testimony about his mental health, and then they had to listen as Donald's parents took the stand. After his arrest, they had moved to live within five miles from the prison so they could still be a part of their son's life, even if it was reduced to just visits at the prison and weekly calls and letters. They read the letters that he wrote to them over the years. Charles Dilbeck, now 67, wore the same plaid jacket that he bought 21 years ago for the special occasion of adopting six-year-old Donald. He cried as he told jurors that his son is his life and he wished he could trade places with him or spend the weekends fishing with him again. Ada Dilbeck, now 60, spoke about how much she loved him from the moment that she got news that there was a little boy available for adoption. Donald testified that he was prepared to face the ultimate punishment, but worried that it would kill his parents if he was sentenced to death. His parents choked on tears as they took the stand. Four jurors cried while his parents asked for mercy. The jurors spent three hours discussing the matter in private before they announced their decision. Three jurors were still crying as they read their 8-4 to decision to sentence Donald Dilbeck to death. Side note, the state awarded the Van Estate... for the death of Phelan Van. But before the family could collect, the appeals court overturned the decision and the family sued. Their lawyer pointed out the irony that if an inmate attacks a fellow inmate, the DOC can be sued. Mm -hmm. If an inmate kills another inmate, the state is obligated to pay at least the funeral expenses and possibly more to the families. But if an inmate attacks an innocent person in public, there's no liability on the state's part. That's such bullshit. The courts ultimately decided that the Department of Corrections has a duty not to allow a prisoner to escape. That's true. But they're not liable for the actions of that prisoner who does escape. So the family was awarded nothing. And, of course, this case was all over the news, and Governor, at the time, Governor Bob Martinez, immediately started looking into how Dilbeck was even able to get on the minimum security detail in the first place. He ended up firing three correctional officials and suspending eight others. Those eight were placed on a 10-day administrative leave with pay. It was also noted that out of the 10 inmates that were working that catering event, Mm -hmm. four of them were serving life sentences for murder. Unbelievable. One other besides Dilbeck was serving a sentence for killing a police officer. Makes me wonder if he was also at the police officer event. I don't know. But it didn't say and I didn't look it up. Martinez also ordered that any prison inmate serving minimum mandatory sentences to be in close custody or maximum security status. So with this order, 846 prisoners were moved because they were being held with minimum supervision. <laughs> Oy vey. Uh huh. And with all this moving, there's not really tons of space in prisons. So, 662 prisoners were freed at that time because they were within their 30 days of being released. I'm sure they were happy as shit. I'm sure they were. They got Yay! out a month early. Woo! <laughs> all this was also happening during an election year. So, his opponents were all over the media saying that Martinez was making the wrong decisions to move all these prisoners to maximum security. They wanted more of a case by case approach. Martinez's proponents argued that people would rather feel safe at this point than wait for each case to be looked at individually. Martinez did create a task force of over 200 state corrections officers who gathered at a hotel in Ocala to discuss revamping the work release program. But Martinez ended up losing that year's election, and in response to the ongoing issue, the three officers who were fired were rehired, being paid $7,500 in attorney's fees, plus all of the back pay they missed. They also reversed the decisions to move the closed custody's transfers. They made minor changes, but when it was all said and done, everything went back to the system that was in place before. On Monday, January 23rd, 2023, Governor Ron DeSantis signed the death warrant. And on Thursday, February 23rd, 2023, Donald David Dilbeck, age 59, was pronounced dead at 6.13 p.m. by means of lethal injection. His last meal, you want to know what his last meal was? I always love a last meal. I know. I should have done it for the others. Kind of like Timothy McVeigh,
1: who ate like two gallons of mint
0: chocolate chip ice cream you know what i've recent i've always said i want to eat the nastiest fucking thing so that that room gets messy but i heard that it's like hours before it is number one number two a lot of prisoners a lot of
1: prisons are not doing away with the last meal because it's yeah. so wasteful
0: it is like I, you know you that, have
1: yeah. a, a you have offenders who are ordering like this exorbitant amount of food and then like eating like twenty five percent of it mm-hmm. and they gotta chuck the rest. Yeah. Like, and that's on back on taxpayers' money. I bet so. the guy in the next cell would appreciate the rest.
0: Like, do they really have to chuck it? <laughs> Probably, yeah. <laughs> I've heard some weird shit as lost meals. All right. His last meal fried shrimp, mushrooms, onion rings, butter pecan ice cream, pecan pie, and a chocolate bar. He also met with a spiritual advisor. I hope they split that meal. Holy shit. My right? boy eats. eat. That was a lot. Yes. Mushrooms. I like mushrooms. I hate mushrooms. Like, you know what were the fucking mushrooms on? Fried shrimp, mushrooms, and onion rings.
1: On the side. Everything was fried. Just mushrooms?
0: Like, yeah, like okra. It, it didn't say fried mushrooms. Plucked out of the garden. I don't know. All right. His last words were, I know I hurt people when I was young. I really messed up. But I know Ron DeSantis has done a lot worse. He's taken a lot of people. I speak for all the men, women, and children. He's put his foot on our necks. He ended his statement with more obscene words aimed at DeSantis. The children of Faye Lamb Van issued a written statement through the DOC that said, 11,932 days ago, Donald Dilbeck brutally killed our mother. We were robbed of years of memories with her, and it has been very painful ever since. However, the execution has given us some closure. We are grateful to Governor DeSantis for carrying out the sentence. Then I wrote, additional discussion. How would his life have been different if his second lawyer, with all the mental health stuff, had come up during his first trial? It's like a book report now. Like, it Here are, like are it. the book report questions. <laughs> but that's the case, and it's like... I hated him so much. And then as I was writing, I'm like, it, it kind of looks like I feel sorry. But, yeah. you know, at 15, like his his first lawyer didn't say anything about any of the mental health stuff. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering, you know, if that had been brought up when he was a kid.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. It would have made a
0: difference. Yeah. Would he have gotten psychological help in prison? That maybe would have led to, you know, Faye not getting killed. I mean,
1: the human brain doesn't even start to stop developing until 25. True. So, I mean, he was making these irrational, you know, decisions on the spot and on the fly. Yeah. So when you add that and you layer it, it's like a foundation, a, a bad foundation. So you had everything that happened to him in his childhood. And then you layer on top of that, you know, the fact that he wasn't fully developed so you just keep stacking it and stacking it. And eventually, it was bound to cave in. Unfortunately, it happened in the worst two possible ways. With a law enforcement officer and with a woman who was just sitting in her car. Like, yeah, you know, you couldn't have picked two worst victims. I mean, a victim is a victim regardless. But, I mean, geez louise, it's, it's bad. Mm-hmm. There's just no way of looking at it that's positive. And the fact that his lawyer didn't fight for him.
0: I mean it was it was obviously a public defender right because his parents had to sell things yes. just to travel down to see him for a weekend but that public defender like they they said Dilbeck's file was 2 inches thick for all the motions he just filed motions and motions and mm-hmm. motions and motions and he didn't really do much else yep there there wasn't much to the court case itself that led way to the second case because if you think about it that's
1: one of the appeals in and of itself every every person who you know appeals always appeals based on what ineffective, ineffective assistance of counsel mm-hmm. always mm-hmm. so i mean he had grounds for it he had grounds to use that
0: he didn't appeal for that he he did appeal saying that he was coerced into his confession but i never saw anything with ineffective assistance of counsel but you had it in the bag because you had all these other things that... He didn't know that. But do you see what I'm saying? Like you yeah, know. But he knew now. Like, his second lawyer was like, oh, my God, you're fucked up. But when he was 15, nobody was telling him, like, yeah, your mother abused you. And, like, he just... That was his life. Yeah. You know? I don't think he had any clue that he could have had that as part of a defense. And I'm not saying it would have worked. He killed a police officer. No, like, I know. But at the same time, that. it's, you know... If you think about it, if the attorney would have sat
1: down with him for more than 20 minutes and started asking him just basic questions Mm -hmm. about his childhood, about his parents, just basic, you know, pre-sentence questions, you know, he would have gotten all that out of him. And they could have used that. It was also 1979. 1979. I know, but I mean, they still could have... Like I said, basic questions. Yeah. What's your mother's name? What's Mm -hmm. your father's name? What's your relationship with them? Yeah. Once you open up that door, it would have come out like floodgates. He would have said all this kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, and then the lawyer could have put two and two together. So it sounds like... He never met with his client until the day of court. Right. Literally looked at the prosecutor and said, What are you offering him? He leaned over to him and said, This is what they're offering. Yeah. And it's your best bet to take it because you're now considered a cop killer and you're not gonna survive.
0: Yeah. Plead That's the it. guilty
1: so you don't get the death penalty. Yep. So he pled guilty. Yep. Because if you take it to trial, if you plead, you know, no contest and you try to take it to, to trial, those mm-hmm. jurors are gonna condemn you.
0: Especially not with that lawyer.
1: And they're gonna give you the they're gonna give you the, the top. Yep. of 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 the points chart so
0: well i don't know would they have sentenced a 15 year old to death if that entire story came out and he's like i i was freaking out i grabbed his gun it, it was obviously not premeditated it was it was a scared, you need to confused confused think about kid. the way you need to think about the
1: way people used to look at law enforcement back in 60 79 and mm-hmm. the way people look at law, law enforcement now where back then you know their word was law it was their way or no way and people respected law enforcement. And it was the law enforcement's word against this person. It's not like now where, because of all the cases that we have seen in the media, mm-hmm. where, and because you've seen so much police brutality, mm-hmm. that we can look at police and be like, you know, at this, at, we can say not all cops are bad, but we've seen enough that are bad. So, you know, well, what, but this cop- we're a little bit more discriminating now as opposed to back then. Back True. then, if you told someone he killed a cop, that's it. That's all you needed to hear to condemn
0: him. I mean, but this cop was perfect in my eyes. Like, you know, he, he volunteered with kids. Mm-hmm. He he kept telling Donald, I'm not going to hurt you. I'm not going to hurt you. You know, and the kid freaked he out. He freaked out. No, absolutely. But
1: again, that goes back to his age.
0: Yeah. That, I mean, even even if you take away
1: everything in his childhood and everything that, had, that was working against him, he was a kid. And he reacted the way any kid would.
0: Mm-hmm. You know,
1: like it... It I mean It's just, it's sad. It is. It's all the way sad.
0: Yeah. Nobody won that one. I never expected to feel sorry at all for him during this case.
1: No, yeah. you go back and forth on mm-hmm. it. Then again, I mean there you're allowed to feel your feelings because there are plenty of people that are currently on death row who I'm pretty sure should not be there. So I mean
0: I, but then again, he, I mean, he's obviously a danger to society. You can't let this guy out. No, I'm not saying to let him out. Absolutely right. not. I mean, but there, there were people, po- pro- remember I said there were protesters? <clears throat> yes. They were protesting that somebody this mentally ill should not be mm-hmm. put to death because that's inhumane. Yep. And I'm like, I can see that argument, too.
1: No, absolutely. I mean, and that's why I just made the comment of there are plenty of people that are serving, that are on death row that should not be there. Yeah, People with, that are mentally ill should not be there.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I mean, so basically we're no different than Cuba who kills their mentally ill people. Do they really? Yeah. yeah. I mean, we're no different well, because we, we cover it with the niceties of no no we we kill our mentally ill people we do that because there are plenty of mentally ill people that are on death row Mm
0: -hmm.
1: and i'm i'm not gonna sit here and get political about and be like i'm i'm for it i'm against it none of that i'm just saying in general there are people who should not be there
0: i agree with that so (sighs) ooh, yeah ooh, they yeah i told you my it's frustrating my emotions about this case were i i went back and forth and back and forth and then i'm like I, I don't know. So, some parts of this sound very sympathetic towards him. Mm-hmm. And I didn't mean it to because, you know, the victims were innocent. Like, no, even the police up. officer, he was he was a great guy. Like, he did nothing wrong. That sucks, man. It, it's, yeah, it sucks. All right. So, we didn't do it in the beginning, but mm-hmm. we should do it now. Um, how can you find us if you're interested? <laughs> in more I don't remember how they could find this anymore <laughs> <laughs> it would change because Twitter would not cooperate with me so if you're interested in more you can go to our website fstcpod.com where we have all the links to our social media but if you're looking to go directly you can reach us on Twitter at FSTrueCrime we're on TikTok and Instagram as FSTCPod and on Facebook for now you just have to search for Freshly Squeezed True Crime and as always may the juice be with you